Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Good morning. It's time for another Jazz Shapers. I'm Elliot Moss. It's where the shapers of jazz, soul and blues meet the shapers of business. Our business shaper is always someone who's built their empire their way. My business shaper today is Michael Rolfe, who after a career at Barclay Card, First Data and PayPal, has created the loyalty marketing platform called YoYo. What is YoYo? Well, luckily, Michael's going to explain that over the next 50 minutes or so. Uh, intriguing. I'm going to ask you firstly, hello. Firstly, actually, hello. Nice to see you. Uh, good so, morning. Good morning. Um, tell me in your own words what Yo-Yo, Yo-Yo Wallet is. Of course. I've, I've explained it earlier, but I'm sure I haven't done a good enough job of it. I want you to tell me. Yeah, no worries. So Yo-Yo is, a, first and foremost, it's a, it's a technology platform that combines three different elements around our world of sort of transactions and commerce. So we combine payment, loyalty, and marketing. And what that translates into from a consumer's perspective for for you and I when we go to a store is that we can use a a mobile app essentially to pay and immediately collect our loyalty points or our loyalty stamps and a fully itemized digital receipt from the retailer that we're purchasing from. And on top of that, what we're also able to benefit from is the ability to receive rewards and incentives for our future purchasing behavior as well. And on the retailer side of the equation, we have a product that we've put to market for them called Engage, and that enables them to have a better understanding of who their customers are. So another way to think of it is if anyone has ever used the Starbucks mobile payment loyalty app, or more interestingly, the Cafe Nero one, and think about Tesco Club Card, if you put those two things together, we're democratizing that experience for all of the retail landscape. And this is a anyone can download the app, right? Anyone I mean, can, yes. Because obviously, I, I go to Starbucks, I go to Cafe Nero. I've got my piece of paper for Cafe Nero, thinking about it. But I have my mobile app for Starbucks. You're telling me now I can change my my. Well, life. yeah, that will be the last bit of paper you'll have from Cafe Nero because I can sit here now with my Cafe Nero app and invite you to get their app. And if you do that and you transact, you're going to get a free uh, reward for that. It would be an ice drink, and and most importantly, you're going to unlock one for me. So if you think about what we're doing here is we're, we're putting technology at the heart of customer experiences in a way that's never been possible before. So um, in fact, you can even take that paper stamp card you've got into a store, tell them that you no longer want the paper, and they can digitalize those stamps on that bit of paper onto your Cafe Nero app that's powered by Yo-Yo. This is life-changing, Michael. In my own my own little world, this is very important because I, I run and every time I have to remember to put the piece of paper in because we stop halfway and we're not going to have to do that anymore. Um, what always intrigues me about people that set up technology businesses, where they've come from and how they've done it, and obviously over the last seven years that we've been doing this program, that landscape has exponentially grown. I mean, a few years ago, we were interviewing a few people, there was a bit of funding around. Now I'm regularly talking to people like you. You've got a, over a £20 million funded business. Um, you're in that world. Just go back a bit, because about whenever you left university, probably just uh, 2002 or something like that, 16 yeah. years ago or so, what did you want to do? And how have you ended up where you are? Well, probably like most people that leave university nowadays uh, and back then, I didn't really have a sense of what I wanted to do. I just knew I needed to earn money. 
Um, I actually had more of a sense of what I didn't want to do, which ironically is what I turned out doing uh, as my first job out of uni, which was selling media advertising. So my big request to all agencies I went to is I don't want to sell advertising. And I said, well, well, don't worry about that. We've got this media job for you. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> so um, I spent about a year and a half working for a publishing house, which was in the financial uh, world called, um, the, the publishing house was called MSM uh, International. And I worked on a magazine called International Custody and Fund Administration. And in hindsight, it was, a, it was a fantastic job. And, you know, rewind the clock. There was no laptops. There was no internet at this office at this point in time. I had a, a Rolodex of the last guy's leads and a, and a magazine in front of me. And so I spent sort of 18 months learning the craft of picking a phone up and asking people for things like, uh, you know, money and, you know, in, in uh, reward for a uh, space in the magazine. So, um, you know, that, that was kind of how it started. But at the same time, um, I was still in contact with some, some guys I went to university with. And we decided that what the world really needed was some alternative snacks in the pub and bar industry. And we, we ended up importing uh, these little tins of peanuts, olives and sweets uh, that you get on the counters in those big dispensers. So we were responsible for bringing them to the UK. Um, and that was an interesting ride. I learned a lot of lessons very quickly. And I kind of got the bug from there that, you know, I probably want to sort of master my own destiny a little bit. But before really having an idea of what to do, I ended up finding myself in the sort of the payments world. Um, again, more through luck, I think, and, and through sort of just an opportunity that came at the time and, and landed my first sort of real corporate job at Barclay Card Business. And and I want to come back to all this, but it strikes me that all the things you've done enable you to do the thing that you're doing now, and, I, and that's that's really the the point behind it. But you realised relatively quickly that the corporate world wasn't for you, I'm assuming, um, or not relatively quickly, but at some point there must yeah. have been a hold on a minute. Well, I, well, actually, I had, I remember something different. If I could, you know, now I'm sort of thinking through uh, back to your question. You know, I guess remembering back to when I was at university and the time I did actually try to forge a career for myself ironically was in the world of advertising and considering our offices in Fitzrovia, you know, it turns out I kind of got to where I wanted to. But at the time, I remember also thinking I wasn't going to be the type of person that was cut out for a corporate life. And that was a very internal feeling that I had. And I had no reason to think or, or have any understanding of why I, I should feel like that. Because the reality is, I actually did quite well in a corporate environment. And I think that, um, you know, the world today is, is trying to train everybody to think very entrepreneurially and, and sort of almost go anti- big corporate in terms of the way they think about what they start. But, you know, I, I actually owe a lot of my sort of way in which I think about the world today to sort of my experiences at my first sort of three big corporate jobs. Mm. Michael Rolfe is my business shaper, CEO and co-founder at YoYo Wallet. And I think really important, you you know, you said you, you learn stuff from corporate life and you were in the big corporates. Um, but eventually what interests me is you went into become a founding member director at this thing called the Anthemist Group, which was a fintech advisor and investment business. So That's correct. I know now you're taking, you're now taking you're on the other end of receiving uh, investment. On that other side of it, what were your criteria for making investments? If you boiled it right down to the two or three things when you knew when someone was pitching to you, because so many people listening and people I've had on the program have had to do this very thing. What were you buying? I was buying belief. You know, you, you sit with a person in front of you that's, selling you a dream in a sense you know there's no um there's nothing to say that what they're what they're pitching could be real other than their own belief that they're going to make it real and i was i'm always big in in thinking that if you're going to back early stage companies and invariably those companies that we were backing were on powerpoint only that you've you've got to be able to look somebody in the eye and when they tell you they're going to you know go and create a, a multi-million dollar 
company that you actually think they've got it within them to see it through. Because one thing's for sure, whatever it is they're pitching at the time and how they think they're going to do it isn't going to be right. So you've got to back the person. Mm. I was a big, big for that. And and the other side of it is that clearly there's got to be some competencies displayed in terms of at least how they think structurally about how they can create the business from a financial perspective in terms of their modeling and their planning and just showing the right skill sets. Because a lot of the entrepreneurs today that have come through this sort of new generation of technology-led entrepreneurs, you know, they're a lot younger. So that sort of corporate life may not be there or that sort of foundation of one particular skill set. And, and so it was always about, you know, do you think they've just got what it takes? And, and it's hard to kind of quantify that. You only get it from a feeling as kind of how I approached it, which probably meant I wasn't a very good investor really, but there you go. And I'm, I don't think that's, I'm sure that's not true. But now going flipping on the other side very uh, briefly, just to set this up, what did people buy into? Because I know you've had some, you know, some serious investing. In fact, I think the one at Woodford Investment Management, yeah. Neil Woodford, was on this program um, not that long ago. What was Neil buying? Um, that's quite interesting, actually. So I remember I, I met Neil at uh, a dinner where one of our, our sort of founding investors uh, had put on IP Group. Um, at the time it was Touchstone Innovations and I met Neil and it was at a time when he'd just done an article talking about the difference between sort of Europe and, and the West Coast and the approach to sort of, you know, bet big to win big. And and I literally had about three minutes of his time and, and told him that I thought he was absolutely right and here's what we're doing and, you know, I'd like you to see, put your money where your mouth is because I, I will take your money and I will return it to you with a lot of interest and a lot of thanks. Um, and, of course, it wasn't... Yeah, it wasn't done there and then, you know, we had to go through all, all the team and stuff. But, um, you know, I, I think on the flip side of it, I mean, I can pick an investor that's really looking at the model versus an investor that's buying the vision. And I think certainly with what we're doing, the type of person I am, you know, I think it's about people buying the vision. They've got to believe that what we're doing has a right to exist in this world. And there's a lot of nuance behind it in terms of sort of the experiences we're creating, the technology we're building. So it's not even about the fact they've got to understand how that happens. It's just that, you know, they kind of, you know, see the same sort of, I guess, maniacal belief uh, in my eye that I would expect and wanted to see from somebody I was investing in. Okay, that's a pretty clear answer. Neil has hopefully made a good investment. We think he has. He's I think he has. Michael does think of that. Much more coming up from Michael Rolf for my business shape in a few minutes. But in the meantime, the last in the current series on this programme, we're going to hear more about the gig economy with Mishkondorea lawyer Susanna Kintish in the latest news session podcast hosted by Paddy O'Connell, which you can also find in full on iTunes. The News Sessions with Paddy O'Connell in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Just FM. Hello, I'm Paddy O'Connell and you're listening to the News Sessions from Mishkondorea. Each week we have an in-depth look at a key item of law which is hitting the headlines. Today we're talking about the gig economy and it's all about the way we earn money in the modern age. And here to discuss is Susanna Kintish. She's employment partner at Mishkondorea. If we take if we take a step back, you know, one of the, the motivators I think for the initial for the initial sway towards finding worker status was that it's very unappetizing to find that someone's self employed because it means that theoretically they don't get discrimination protection. And that's abhorrent. Why should you be able to discriminate against somebody because because they're they're self-employed. They signed a different contract. Exactly. It's um, or their working practices differ. Um, so actually, I think that if we extend the base level of protection to everyone, regardless of whether they're an employee, regardless of whether they're a worker, regardless of whether they're self-employed, then actually we can look um, much more critically at 
at other issues and where there is genuine two-way flexibility then people may not need protection of paid holiday for example um but they absolutely ought to get the the, the basic protection against discrimination. Yeah, so Parliament may get to the point where it says there are some things that are going to become universal no matter what your tax... The non-negotiables. Pro- non-negotiables. Yeah. So that's a really interesting briefing from you because you are a lawyer and actually we could expect you to say... I'm only going to talk to you about Section 5 of the Employment Act, but you're saying actually social change is so big at the moment, people are going to have to really own up to this and get to grips with what's going on. And in the meantime, lawyers like you are going to fight little cases here and there, but the big picture's not really been sorted out. Yeah. The New Sessions Podcast with Paddy O'Connell from Mishkondorea. Find more of the New Sessions Podcasts dealing with key legal matters on iTunes. Just a reminder that you can hear the full new sessions podcast from Paddy O'Connell on the Gig Economy on the Jazz Shapers channel on iTunes. Just have a look for that today. And whilst you're there, you can also catch up with the other 350 plus Jazz Shapers that we've had on the show in the last seven years. But right now, my business shaper is Michael Rolfe. And Michael is CEO and co-founder at YoYo Wallet, a combination, I liked what you said earlier, Michael, of payments, loyalty and marketing, which makes sense to me. And someone who also, I like, I like using those little things. I like my rewards. Silly, isn't it? It's a basic human um, need. Where have things got to go in the next 18 months for you to be where you want to be? What needs to happen? So we've got a lot in play at the moment that's going to significantly grow the number of users of Yo-Yo Wallet. So, so as we sit here talking, you know, we've smashed through a million registered users within the UK. Um, we have, you know, 71% retention over 12 months of that user base, which is you know phenomenal stat for us. Um, but the reality of life is I'm not that impressed with a million users. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the sort of a number on the path to the bigger number. And we've got a lot of work going on at the moment with um, an existing industry called banking, which, um, you know, depending on what side of the sort of the argument you come on, I believe will either be completely disrupted or you or will be completely revolutionized. And we come on the side of revolution to a degree, and we are here to enable banks to provide better customer experiences that are more rewarding and delightful every day. Um, so I think that what we'd like to see happen in the na- next 18 months is that the banks speed up their realisation that technology, the technology that's happened to banking, that a lot of these challenges that are coming through with is something that they need to more rapidly embrace and think about how they partner um, you know, more efficiently with those sort of breakthrough companies like Yo-Yo in order to sort of maintain their their customer base. Um, and I think on the back of that, we've we've obviously made a, some announcements recently about sort of, I guess, some of the component parts that we need to uh, put in place in order to materialise these opportunities that we're talking about. But I think, you know, 18 months from now, if we were having this conversation, we'd be talking about some very big high street banks that are powered by yo-yo in the sense that if you open your bank app you'll have your yo-yo wallet inside that you could use to pay and collect your rewards and your loyalty points etc and on the flip side of that wouldn't it be great if you could use that at more places so we've got you know a number of high street retailers live today but that's really a big focus of ours now is to expand the number of locations in the high street that you can benefit from this seamless experience of payment and loyalty Mm. Um, and so there's a number of very nice names that are going to be coming out in the second half of this year that are all sort of switching on the you know the the power of you know yo-yo as it were for them and actually makes me think about is it important that it's powered by yo-yo or do you let's just i mean you've done a big deal with visa which is a relatively significant partner to to get it to get in connection with contact with 
is Yo-Yo the brand that will carry on? And if it isn't, does that matter? If this technology is there and you're the owner of the technology, do you really care? Or is there going to be, is your vision, no, no, Yo-Yo's the thing? Well, the way I, you know, the way we think about it, if you think that, you know, Visa is for payment, you know, we think of Yo-Yo is for loyalty. And we think there's an absolute space in the market that at the point of sale, a new brand that, that consumers recognise, uh, you know, can exist. And, you know, the, the thing for for us is that we're not a payment business. We're enabled through payment. And that means we partner very nicely with the, the big players like, like Visa, um, who are doing some wonderful things with, uh, you know, reinventing their business for sort of the, the modern world in which we live and partnering with companies like Yo-Yo. Um, so I do think that Yo-Yo will be a very recognisable brand at the point of sale experience, both, uh, you know, whether it's at the till or whether it's within your app. You know, it doesn't have to be an app that is called Yo-Yo. It could be, uh, you know, could be your banking app that's, uh, you know, got a Yo-Yo wallet inside. Sounds very clever, Michael. Um, I have a feeling we're going to be seeing a lot more Yo-Yo. I'm going to certainly download it after this, he says quickly, so he doesn't get offended over there. I'll send you that free. Uh, yeah, I'm waiting invite. for that. I'll only, yeah. I'll only do that if you send me the freebie. Um, we've talked about your obvious clarity on what this business can do, your vision for where it's going to go. The bunch of people that you've assembled around you, quite a few of them, I imagine. I don't know. How many have you got? So currently we're, we're about 60 people. And all based in the same place? All based in the same office, yes. What do they say about Michael? What would they say when Michael wasn't in the room? Well, that's a tough one. Um, they're probably all answering right now if they're listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, that's a real tough question, isn't it? Um, what would I like them to say versus what are they saying? I think they'd, they'd probably say that I'm certainly somebody that you know is very direct in terms of sort of speaking my mind about the good, the bad, the ugly of sort of daily life of trying to build a company. Um, I think they'd also say I'm pretty, pretty passionate about what we do. Um, and, and I'd hope, whether they'd say this or not, but I'd hope um, that they'd also say that he's somebody that really cares about the environment that we're creating around ourselves uh, to enable us to be successful. And that the sort of, the, you know, sort of the people first culture mindset is, you know, very much top of the list of priorities when it comes to sort of you know, being mindful about creating a company. Mm. Um, and is that because that's, a, in, in the nicest possible way, that's a self-interested thing in the sense that if people are happy and they feel good about the space they're in, they're going to be more creative, more productive. Is it as simple as that or is there something else? Well, I, no, I, I do think it's that simple. You know, at the end of the day, companies don't fail, people do. And, and you look at the litany of companies over the years and more recent times that have failed because they didn't innovate. It's because they didn't create environments that enabled the people with the ideas and the creativity and the and the drive to be successful and and I've and I've you know in my time of working with many different corporates both directly and as an advisor I've seen a lot of environments that kind of stifle this through these sort of hierarchical bureaucratic processes and you know I have a very simple belief that you know everybody has great potential and the only limiting factor is the environment around them that can either encourage or stifle that potential and for me at yo-yo one of the you know the the key USP that we have, and it should be the same of all companies when you really bottom it out. It's it's your people, and then it's your culture. Now you may be able to go and hire a bunch of smart people, but if you have a really negative culture that's set by you as the founder or as the leadership as time goes by, you're going to lose the people. So that's why I go back to sort of the simple start point: is it all begins and ends with the people. And put simply, you're right. Michael Rolfe, stay with me. Um, and I hope you're listening. You will stay with me too because we've got our final chat coming up with him. Plus, I'll be playing a track from Lonnie Smith. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business. 
but it's personal. That was Dr. Lonnie Smith with Think. And I hope you've been thinking a lot because Michael Rolfe, my business shaper, said a whole bunch of stuff, just common sense if you ask me. And as he said, he's a direct kind of fellow and he he certainly appears so. We haven't talked about one thing um, and I'm interested to know your answer to this. Money and you and whether you're motivated by it. I mean, you're you're obviously very financially adept. You understand the model you've got. You've thought hard about it. You've worked in financial organisations for a long time. Uh, You strike me as someone who understands how to sell stuff. Where does it sit? I mean, at some point, this business will maybe have an event. Maybe you're involved, maybe you're not. Does the money drive you? And if so, how? Um, Wow, that's a real deep question, actually, for me. Um, So money is this system that we've invented as humans that I consider to be like a points program, right? So the the more you have in your bank, the better you're doing. Um, if it's all a game. So that's one way to think about it. But I, but if you're driven by it, I think you're going to be more often than not unhappy because the reality of life is whatever your number you've got, it's not enough because we're very good as you know, consumers to spend you know, just beyond our means, whatever the number. And actually, I had a very funny conversation with um, one of the associates of one of our investors um, actually just this week who was, we were talking about numbers and... Um, one of the numbers that he threw out, said, well, that would be a lot of money. And I said, well, and without even missing a beat, I said, no, to me, that's not a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money is you can afford to buy a yacht and not care if you don't like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so that the perpetual hunger to want more is, I think, innate. But at the same time, you know, just be happy with what you've got because, you know, I'm wearing a T-shirt. It costs £10. It's from Muji. I like it. And I'm not going to change the type of T-shirt I buy because you you know you think all of a sudden you you can afford to buy a more expensive t-shirt. So I'm not materially driven in that sense. What I do care about and and I recognize that you know money is a great enabler for it's for providing opportunity for experiences um and those experiences not you know none less more than the experiences I can provide for you know my family and certainly for my my boys I've got three of them. Um in you know you you kind of you know I certainly feel that if you can provide these environments for them that you know, you have to recognise in life that that money is kind of the key to unlocking more of those different types of environment. And not all of them should necessarily be ones that they walk into and they feel the pressure to. But but you might as well, you know, if you're here once, go for as big a point as you can get. Eh? Listen, you stay with your Muji top. It's very nice. Muji is also a bit of a favourite with me, and I think you're right. It's nice to think you wouldn't buy a more expensive T-shirt, but I'll come back and we'll find you, and you'll go, well, you know, Christian Dior, it was on offer, and I'll say, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for spending some time with me, Michael. Really good luck. You've got real clarity, and I think you'll. I hope the business will go really far and do really, really well for you. Thank you. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? So um, I thought about this long and hard, actually, um, but I've gone with Eva Cassidy and Blue Skies from her live at blues alley album and the reason for that um actually is so there's one artist that i i wish that i could have experienced live it's it's eva cassidy because her her voice and her delivery um was phenomenal i mean she could sing the phone book um and of course given that uh, we're in the middle of a, a heat wave um and there's nothing but blue skies ahead of us i thought why not make a connection with all of the listeners and hopefully whatever they're doing this morning they'll they'll see blue skies 
ahead of them too. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Here she is just for you. That was Eva Cassidy with Blue Skies from her Live at Blues Alley album, the song choice of my business shaper today, Michael Rolfe. A person with utter 100% clarity, 100% conviction, and a really cool mantra, which is create environments within which people can flourish. It doesn't get simpler than that. That's it from Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or head over to mishkondorea.com forward slash jazz shapers.